0: But if we're not careful, we can crowd Jesus out of our lives. And when we do that, we crowd out the commitment that we have to Him that He desires from us. And it does detrimental damage to our soul. This is Andrew Smith, pastor of Christ Reformed Community Church, located in St. John's County, Florida, just south of Jacksonville and a short distance from St. Augustine. The sermons on this podcast are preached weekly at Christ Reformed, and we'd love for you to join us for worship. Let me tell you a little bit about our church. Three words can help describe our church in simple terms. First, we are confessional. We endorse and teach from both the Westminster Standards along with the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. Second, we are expositional. Our church's ministry focuses on the expository preaching of God's Word. Currently, I am preaching through the Gospel of Mark. Third, we are intentional. This church was established in early 2016 with the intention of focusing on the ordinary means of grace. It is the study of God's Word, prayer, and the sacraments that remain our focus as a church. So, if you are interested in a confessional, Reformed Church plant, intentional to focus on the simplicity of ministry, you may want to consider visiting us. Our meeting address is 161 Hampton Point Drive, Suite 2, St. Augustine, Florida, 32092. We are located less than 3 miles from Interstate 95 and less than 2 miles from Extension 9B. We are just south of Julington Creek. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, www.christreformedcc.com. Also, for access to more sermons as well as articles and a podcast I host focusing on church history and theology, you can visit www.pastorandrewsmith.com. Now, let's take our Bibles and open them to the Gospel of Mark for our sermon this week. The title of the message is Clan Christ, and I want you to stand in honor of the reading of God's Word, Mark chapter 3. We'll pick up in verse 20, this is where we left off several weeks ago, and we'll read down through to the end of the chapter, verse 35, now hear the word of our Lord. Then he, that is Jesus, went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. He has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother." This is the word of our God. Please be seated. As far back as the 12th century, the concept of a clan was a dominant feature, especially in the Scottish Highlands. Scottish clans were essentially extended networks of families who held intense loyalty to their particular clan chief. That word clan is a Gaelic term that just means children. And a clan was a family of children, united by a particular surname. It was complete with a clan seal, complete with a clan slogan, complete with a clan tartan, but not always. There were times in which certain individuals from larger families were allowed to associate with certain clans and were accepted into these clans. There are many heroic stories, and for lack of time this morning, I won't go into them. But many heroic stories of certain people wanting to be part of a certain clan and conducting some heroic feat and being accepted into that clan, even though they weren't born into that particular family. When a clan chief conquered a certain territory... One's allegiance was required to that clan chief because he essentially was a king and he demanded full and total allegiance. Clans were known for having bitter bitter rivalries and involving themselves in scores of battles recorded in history. To be part of a clan was a matter of life and death. Loyalty to one's clan was not an option. And if you were ever disloyal that was equivalent to bringing disrepute to the clan seal, tarnishing the clan name. And most importantly, it was an affront to the clan chief who allowed you to be part of his clan and his kingdom and his land by grace. One of the most common metaphors in the Scriptures is that of a family to describe the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Ephesians 1, 1 and verse 4, the Bible says we are adopted as sons into the family of God through Christ. And as we have seen in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is out to establish a new family. He calls the twelve apostles to Himself. We read that in chapter 3, verses 13 through 19. He names them, and we know from Ephesians chapter 2 that these apostles became the foundation of the church. The foundation of the family of God. Christ is establishing a new family. A family that will not include some of the people you might think would be part of that family, like the religious leaders and most of the nation of Israel. Jesus was establishing His own clan. He was calling into His own clan the children of God chosen in Him from before the foundation of the world. And he would use these apostles who would go out into the highways and the byways, beginning in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, all the way to the ends of the earth, preaching the gospel, calling people into his family to be part of the family of God. The concept of the family or the clan or the children of God is on Mark's mind as he writes. I've indicated to you before that one of Mark's favorite literary devices is to use the sandwiching technique We see it again here in our passage. The first piece of bread is verses 20 and 21, which speak about Jesus going home, His family hearing all that He was doing, and then coming to the conclusion that He was out of His mind. That then takes us to the end, to the second piece of bread, verses 31 through 35. Later on we read that His mother and His brothers came standing outside, sent word to Him, they had come to rescue Jesus because they thought he had went crazy. His own family. In the middle of these pieces of bread is sandwiched the meat of what Mark wants us to see. And that is this exchange with the religious leaders in which the most likely ones you would think would be part of the family of God, Jesus is clear, are on the brink of committing what he calls the unpardonable sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, effectively cutting themselves off from the kingdom of God for eternity. That's the meat. This is Mark's theological sandwich. He writes to tell us about the family of God. As I said, this passage speaks about what we often call the unpardonable sin. Sometimes when a member of a family brings dishonor to a family name, the parents cut them off forever. This passage shows us that in principle, that is true with respect to clan Christ. Christ is a king, Christ demands complete allegiance to himself and the interests of his kingdom. There are many enemies and hostile forces to Christ's clan and kingdom, but God's true children in Christ, we learn from this passage, must be willing and able to face those hostile pressures head on. And so in these verses, verses 20 through 35, we have revealed to us the greatest hostility toward Jesus up to this point. They actually accused Jesus of operating in the power of Satan. Can you think of a worse accusation than that? This is the worst hostility he has faced, quite frankly, until the disloyalty of his own apostles and the denial by his chief apostle, Peter, before his crucifixion. And then all the hostility that was against him on the cross. But from these verses, Mark is trying to teach us that the family of Christ, clan Christ, must face head on several pressures from a hostile world. The first is an inward pressure. The second, an outward pressure, and the third, a downward pressure. The first pressure is inward. It's an inward pressure of competing interests. Notice with me in verses 20 and 21. After calling the twelve, we might expect Mark to give some lessons from the Sermon on the Mount. That's what Luke does in his Parallel version of this story, but Mark moves quicker than any other gospel writer. He wants to get to the point, so somewhat abruptly, he begins there in verse 20 that after Jesus called the twelve, verse 20 says, Then he that is Christ went home, and the crowd gathered again. He went home. Where was home? Well, home was in Galilee. Specifically, Nazareth, but this isn't a reference to Nazareth, this is a reference to his new home, the headquarters of his Galilean ministry, namely Capernaum. We don't know when this took place, but it instantly reminds us of that incident in chapter 2, because it says that he went home and a crowd gathered again. Remember, when Jesus healed the paralytic, the crowd was so great, it was reaching out from the walls of the house out into the streets, and the friends of the paralytic had to fight through the crowd and lower their friend through the roof roof for Jesus to heal him. This time the crowd was so large that, verse 20 says, they could not even eat a meal. As in the case of Jesus cleansing the man with an unclean spirit, on the Sabbath in the synagogue, going home, finding that Peter's mother-in-law, whom Jesus lived with, because Jesus lived in Peter, Peter's house was sick with a fever. He cured her of that fever. And verse 31 of chapter 1 says, She got up to make a meal, but they didn't have time to eat it before throngs of people began approaching the house, interrupting the meal. The next morning Jesus made it clear to his disciples he didn't mind missing meals, but he would only miss meals for preaching. That is what Jesus or the Father called him to do. He didn't want to miss meals for a healing campaign. So he said, in chapter one, "Let us go on to the next towns verse 38, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out." Jesus' ministry always being interrupted by the crowds. And apparently the news of this event spread to Nazareth where Jesus' family is located because, notice verse 21, and when His family heard it, they weren't in Capernaum, but they heard about it, they went out to seize Him. For they were saying, He is out of His mind. His family obviously refers to his immediate family, Joseph now being dead, Mary, Jesus' brothers, Jesus' sisters. We know that because verse 31 says that later in this passage, then his mother and his brothers arrived. If you're using a King James translation, it will translate the ambiguous Greek phrase, hoi par al as Jesus' friends. And perhaps Jesus' friends in Nazareth were the ones that told the family what Jesus was doing, but the family, clearly, later in the passage, are the ones who come for the rescue operation. In any event, they were saying, clearly here, he is out of his mind, let's go seize him, let's go take custody of him. Literally, that word means to arrest him. It's the same word that is used to describe John the Baptist being arrested, and later Jesus being arrested. Their plan was clear. They're going to leave Nazareth. They're going to go to Capernaum. They're going to take Jesus by force and get him out of the mess he's gotten himself into. They're going to bring him back to his normal senses and the normal responsibilities as the now head of this family, as the oldest son, and the one who needs to go back about the business of being a carpenter. This is nothing short of a family intervention. And it was rooted in Likely several reasons, all of which found their heart and soul in their belief, as verse 21 says, that he was out of his mind. Extain me. It means to be insane, to be mad. They thought Jesus had gone mad. It reminds us of the time Paul stood before King Agrippa and Festus, the Roman governor of Judea, to defend himself, and as he gave testimony, Regarding his Christian conversion, Festus interrupted him and said, Paul, you are beside yourself. Much learning has driven you mad. You're crazy. Something is wrong up here. That's what the family of Jesus thought about Jesus at this point. Now, they were wrong for thinking this about Jesus, obviously, but you can sympathize with them a little bit, I think. Jesus, after all, was a radical, he was saying radical things. He constantly placed his life in jeopardy. At this point, I think Jesus' own family wanted to rescue him from the danger they saw him in, but the reality is, is that they actually were in a very dangerous spot because their idea that he was insane wasn't too far off than how the religious leaders viewed Jesus, and that was he was insane because he was possessed by demons. Many of them were saying, John 10.20 says, he has a demon and is insane. They loved him. They wanted to confront him and his harmful behavior as they saw it. Perhaps they wanted to rescue him from the religious leaders who he constantly collided with and had the political authority to arrest him. Perhaps they wanted to rescue him from his bad health. The passage says Jesus couldn't even eat a meal without being interrupted. He certainly didn't have proper sleep we can think of other basic necessities the son of man had nowhere to lay his head at times through an intense preaching teaching healing ministry luke 6 612 says that word spread that he was staying up all night in prayer to his father They wanted to rescue him perhaps not only from the religious leaders and from his own health, but also from the crowds who were so large they pressed in around him. We saw this in chapter 3 and verse 9. They were so large they pressed around him that they would crush him unless he got in a boat in water and preached from that using the water as a buffer to get away from the crowd. Perhaps they wanted to rescue him from the riffraff of tax collectors and prostitutes. Chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. And what kind of lowlifes were those hanging out with our son, our brother? But most of all, they wanted to rescue themselves from the trouble and inconvenience his busy life, which was immensely controversial, brought upon them. We know from John 7, 5 that even his own brothers were not believing in him at this point. Later, they would come to embrace the Messiah along with his sisters, but that was after the resurrection. Jesus has to appear to one of his own physical brothers, James, to convince him. In fact, we know that uh, from Mark chapter 6 and verse 3, they were saying, is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Josie, and Judas, and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. These Nazareth citizens were not believing who he was, and apparently his own family didn't believe who he was. Now, evidence is clear that Mary did. We know that from Luke chapter 1. She was told by the angel that Jesus would be called the Son of the Most High, the Lord God, would give Him the throne of His father David, and He would reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom would have no end. We know from Mary's Magnificat that clearly she was a believer. She praises God there in that Wonderful song that we talk about at Christmas time. One of my favorite passages of Scripture. Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. I mean, Mary obviously understood she needed saved from something. She understood that she was a sinner. She understood that the baby in her womb would be the one that would save her. But here is the one who was afflicted with. Our affliction. Here is the one who bore our grief and carried our sorrow. And as a mother, she's concerned about Him. It's hard to know exactly what was going through her mind, but perhaps it was the pressure of her other sons who said, Look, Mom, this is kind of ridiculous what Jesus is doing. You need to remember she was human too. I do think there's a lesson in this for us. I mean, how much do we care what the world thinks? perhaps even our own family. Those closest to us, maybe a spouse, maybe children, maybe parents, think that we're too radical. I mean, how far do you want to go in your commitment to Christ? How far do you want to go in commitment to His teachings, to His Word, to His demands? A disciple is a learner, one who follows Christ, one who listens to Christ. Perhaps if Mary wasn't back in Nazareth, but was in Capernaum, listening to the preaching and teaching of Jesus, the Word of God would have served as a stabilizing mechanism to support her up in boldness to stand up against her other sons and say the issue is not us rescuing Jesus, the issue is that you too need rescued from your sin by Jesus. Let's go hear Him preach. You know, sometimes it is the inward pressures from family. Competing interests From others in our lives. It could be a boss, it could be our time, it could be our money, it could be our priorities all mixed up. But if we're not careful, we can crowd Jesus out of our lives. And when we do that, we crowd out the commitment that we have to Him that He desires from us, and it does detrimental damage to our souls. We're all susceptible to this. We might even question the importance of our commitment to Christ internally in our own hearts. Jesus, or Mary was susceptible to this. Remember in the temple when Jesus was a little boy, she said, Where, where'd you go? Your father and I have been looking for you. Where were you? Frustrated at Jesus. Don't you know, Mom, I need to be about my father's business? Or when Jesus performed the first miracle, the wedding of Cana, she tries to order Jesus around, and Jesus says, look, I, I'm here to do the father's bidding. There was all sorts of pressure on Mary. In fact, there's an interesting prophecy in the book of Zechariah in the Old Testament, Zechariah chapter 13, which says there was shame for the parents of a false prophet. If anyone again prophesies, Zechariah 13.3, His father and mother who bore him will say to him, You shall not live, for you speak lies in the name of the Lord. And his father and mother who bore him shall pierce him through when he prophesies. On that day, every prophet will be ashamed of his vision. When he prophesies, he will not put on a hairy cloak in order to deceive, but he will say, I am no prophet. I am a worker of the soil. I am a man sold in my youth. Shame. most fearful thing for the parent of a prophet in Old Testament Israel was that their son would say something false. And bring shame to the family. I don't think Mary was at that point. She was a believer. But she naturally did not want her son accused of being a false prophet, right? But commitment to Jesus demands everything. There can't be these inward pressures of competing interests. We must be able to overcome them. Fortunately, Mary and the rest of her family did. Jesus says, these things I have spoken to you while I'm still with you, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. That day came. She finally understood what Jesus had come to do. He needed to be crucified and die on the cross for sinners. She got to the point where she saw that. She's not 100% there at this point. Jesus said, "...if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life he can't be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation..." and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet again way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. That was the commitment level that Jesus was calling his followers to. This new society being built on the foundation of the apostles would require a commitment. And even physical Jews who were leaders of Israel were not granted automatic entrance. And catch this, even those physically related to Christ were not granted immediate entrance. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It results in a full commitment to Christ, placing yourself under his lordship as your king. And you will prove the validity of your true Christianity by the degree that you are committed to Christ and committed to his church. What did Cyprian say? You cannot have God as your father if you don't have the church as your mother. This is a commitment to Christ. It is a commitment to the family of Christ with no strings attached. But that's pressure, isn't it? Jesus' own family felt that inward pressure of competing interests. We feel the same. We must be confronted on that and held accountable on that. And the place you find that accountability is in a local church. Well, that's the first pressure. It's an inward pressure. An inward pressure of competing interests. But there's a second pressure that Jesus reveals through his teaching and Mark wants us to see and that is an outward pressure. An outward pressure of confronting insults. So we move from the inward pressure of competing interests, verses 20 and 21, to the outward pressure of confronting insults, verses 22 through 30. Now the scene is shifting. We'll get back to Jesus' family at the end, but now the scene is shifting. And here we see, beginning in verse 22, spies from the religious establishment sent, and they're going to conduct an examination. Notice Verse 22. It says, the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, from which he casts out demons. The scribes came down from Jerusalem. They would have done that literally. Jerusalem was 2,400 feet above sea level. They would have come down to Galilee, which was 600 feet below sea level. But this delegation sent by the Sanhedrin descended not with topological details on their minds, but theological ones. They were the elite force of theological giants coming down from the citadel of orthodoxy in Jerusalem to lowly Jesus to set Him straight. What exactly was behind this? Well, we know from Matthew's parallel account in Matthew chapter 12 and Luke's parallel account in Luke chapter 11, that just prior to this, Jesus had healed a demon-possessed man who was unable to see or speak. This resulted in the crowd asking the all-important question rooted in the covenant that God made with David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. They were wondering out loud, and they were saying, Matthew 12, verse 22, Surely this cannot be the son of David, can it? This delegation came to squelch that belief, to plant doubts. They came to this crowd and they said, "Uh, What's your question? I'll tell you what we'll do. Let's have a Bible study. What's on your minds? Give me a question. Is this the son of David? No. They were saying, verse 22, he is possessed by Beelzebub. He is possessed by Beelzebub, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. Jesus' family viewed him as mad. The religious leaders view him as bad. Jesus got his power from Satan. Perhaps they heard that there were many who thought he had been out of his mind and they thought to themselves, well, now we can add to that a reason for why he's out of his mind. It's because he's operating under the power of Satan. It's hard to imagine Jesus ever being on the receiving end of a worse accusation. But it was specific, wasn't it? These authoritative religious leaders said he was under the power of Beelzebub, the prince of demons, so powerfully casting out demons. This was an obvious attempt to turn the crowds against Jesus, to undermine him. If the religious leaders could convince the crowds that Jesus' power, which they couldn't deny, wouldn't deny, and didn't deny came from a different source, then it didn't matter how many healings he performed. It didn't matter how great his preaching was. It didn't matter how many demons he cast out. He had come from hell, not from heaven. Beelzebul. That was an Old Testament title for the ring-leading deity of the Philistine city of Ekron, known as the God of Ekron from 2 Kings chapter 1. In an, in an effort... To mock the false god Baal, the Israelites used a play on words and called Beelzebul Beelzebub because Beelzebub meant Lord of the Flies or get this, Lord of the Dung Heap because that's what flies are attracted to is dung. By Jesus' day, Beelzebul or Beelzebub became a mocking title for Satan himself. What they're saying is that Jesus was operating in the power of Satan. He is a sorcerer, not a savior. He is a devil, not divine. He is full of lies, not truth. Why did they do this? Well, Pilate understood Jesus was innocent. innocent, And in Matthew 27, Scripture says that Pilate knew that he was handed over out of envy. They were jealous of Jesus. Why? Here's why. He was more orthodox, he was a better teacher, and he could perform miracles. None of which they could do. Their sermons were boring. It was dry readings of the law of God, placing a yoke on people they could not bear. Jesus came and preached with power. The power was rooted in the words of Scripture. He was a preacher of the Old Testament. The force of God's Word compelled people to come to him. And then he would heal with his hands, which just brought the crowds. And then the religious leaders would question him on something, and he would show his superiority as a theologian, and he hadn't even been trained in the rabbinical schools. They were jealous of Jesus. Here's the irony the accusers were operating under the power of Beelzebub, weren't they? Not Jesus. Not Jesus. And Jesus would tell them that, right? In John chapter 8 You were doing the works your father did. You are of your father the devil. Your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Wow. Might be one reason why they wanted to kill him. They were jealous of him. But this um, outward pressure, which begins with an examination, then follows with a... Refutation. Notice verse 23, Jesus refutes their claims. Like an expert lawyer, Jesus does a little cross-examination himself. He asks them a pointed question to these religious lawyers. Notice the text, verse 23, he called them to him and he said to them in parables. Let me ask you a question. How can Satan cast out Satan? What they said was behind his back, but what he says is to their face. Come here, let me ask you a question. Your accusation appears to be illogical, incoherent, and insidious because how can Satan cast out Satan? And verse 23 says he started to speak to them in parables, which aren't the lengthy sort. These are the short, pithy figures of speech. Jesus doesn't have time for a long discourse like he will give in the parable of the sower in the next chapter. He must get right to the point, point. and this is a good reminder, attacks from outside the church from our enemies must always be dealt with head on. There is an economy of words and blunt truthfulness and crystal clarity in Jesus' words here to leave no denial about who Jesus thought they were and who his true identity was. Most parables hid their meaning. Jesus said, this is why I speak to them in parables, seeing they don't see, hearing they don't hear, nor do they understand. In other words, they're unwilling, they're in denial. So Jesus made them more blind and more deaf, spiritually speaking, to fulfill the prophet Isaiah who says, you will indeed hear, but will never understand. You indeed will see, but never perceive. This is judgment, the door of God's kingdom being shut. And later in Jesus' parables, the religious leaders can't understand them because they don't have spiritual eyes. But here, he's giving them a chance to understand. Here are short, pithy parables rooted in that question, how can Satan cast out Satan? How can he do it? Jesus is saying, look, Satan is a master manipulator. He disguises himself as an angel of light. He may not be all powerful, but he is duplicitous enough to not work against himself. How can Satan cast out Satan? Have you thought through this? This isn't coherent. So, He gives these parabolic illustrations now. The examination and refutation moves to the illustration in verses 24-27, through and He gives these in rapid succession. And they're asked rhetorically, leaving the accused silent. He gives an axiom, verse 24. Jesus says, If a kingdom is divided against itself... That kingdom cannot stand, right? He's saying Satan has his own kingdom, which opposes God. And what kingdom in the midst of a civil war can possibly stand? It's impossible. By way of analogy, even our own country was never the same after our civil war. We were one nation again, but we were not the same nation The kingdom with division is always threatened. That's the history of the world. It's true no matter what kingdom and what time period it takes place in. Satan's kingdom of darkness, Jesus is saying, does not deploy agents to destroy it. That doesn't make any sense. He's battling with God. But everything I have done is to destroy Satan's kingdom. It was Christ's light that gave sight to the blind It was the light of Christ that robbed Satan of his power. In uh, Matthew chapter 8 and verse 29, you had things like this happen. Behold, the demons cried out, What have we to do with you, O Son of God? Have you come to torment us before the time? They knew, the demons knew this was a battle, Jesus wasn't on their side. They would actually cry out, Mark 3.11 says, the unclean spirits would. They'd fall before Jesus and they couldn't help themselves. They would declare, you are the Son of God! They didn't want to say it, but they had to. Because His kingdom of light was invading Satan's dark kingdom. Have you ever wondered why? There are essentially no demon possessions in the Old Testament. There are essentially no demon possessions in the epistles, but there are tons of demon possessions in the Gospels. Here's why. Satan was marshalling his forces of hell against Christ, and you had all sorts of demon-possessed people walking around. And to prove that the kingdom of light would have victory over the kingdom of darkness, Jesus began casting them out, one by one. To borrow Paul's language from Colossians 1, to rescue us from the kingdom of darkness by the kingdom of God's light and placing us in the kingdom of that light. Jesus is saying, the fight is not between Satan's forces and Satan's forces. The fight is between Satan's forces and my forces. And notice verse 25. He says, And further, if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. This is the imagery of a royal house. Even today, if you've watched the news, the royal family of Great Britain Witnesses brother against brother, literally. If you know the history of England, uh, you will know that is the history of England, going all the way back to the Plantagenet kings. Always controversy, always conflict, always civil war. This is true with every royal house and Jesus uses that division within a royal house as another axiomatic example of their religious charge. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. A family opposing itself will always break apart. There won't be unity. So let me ask you again, how can Satan cast out Satan? That's not what's happening. And then he tops off these illustrations with a more lengthy parabolic illustration in verses 26 and 27, which really explain what he's getting at. Notice your Bibles. I love this. Jesus says, And furthermore, if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, as you say, he cannot stand but is coming to an end. He's defeating himself. And no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. In other words, if uh, a burglar wants to rob a homeowner, he first needs to find a way in. Then he needs to tie that homeowner up so he can steal what he wants. We're in the process of putting a security system in the church. What are the ways people can get in? What are the ways people can get out? We want to prevent ways of people getting in so they can't steal our stuff, right? You probably, probably have a security system at your house. Simple illustration. Here's the point. Jesus' power over Satan's demon spirits, by casting them out, was proof positive of the exact opposite of what the religious leaders were claiming, that he was operating under the power of Satan. No, that was proof that he was defeating Satan's kingdom. And I think that Jesus, I can't prove this, but I think Jesus had an Old Testament passage on his mind. Isaiah chapter 49 We've gone back to this time and time again. Isaiah chapter 49. I don't think i pointed out these verses before. But verse 24 of Isaiah 49 says, Can the prey be taken from the mighty, or the captives of a tyrant be rescued? For this says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken, and the prey of the tyrant be rescued. For I will contend with those who contend with you, and I will save your children. The children of God is on the mind of Jesus as He preaches about the family, as we'll see later on. Is it possible for captives of a mighty ruler, a mighty king to be taken, to be rescued? Jesus says, yes, it is. I am the strong man who is going into the kingdom of Satan and I'm turning the lights on and they're scattering like roaches, and I'm destroying their kingdom. I'm going to take everything that Satan has. What does he have? What are his goods? What is his property? The souls of men and women and boys and girls. Second Timothy 2.26 says, we are captured by him to do his will. We're captured by him. Demon possession is just the most extreme case But we're all slaves of sin, right? Romans 6.20. We're all slaves of sin. William Hendrickson in his commentary says, and I quote, "...the Lord is casting out Beelzebub's servants, the demons." and is restoring that which through their agency Satan has been doing to men's souls and bodies. Jesus is doing all this because by means of His incarnation, His victory over the devil in the desert of temptation, His words of authority addressed to the demons, His entire activity, He has begun to bind Beelzebul, a process of binding or curtailment of power that was going to be further strengthened by means of His victory over Satan on the cross and in the resurrection, ascension, and coronation. He has done, is doing, and will do this through the power not of Beelzebul himself, Surely no, but of the Holy Spirit. Yes, the devil is being and is progressively going to be deprived of his goods, his furniture, that is of the souls and bodies of men, and this is not only through healings and demon expulsions, but also through a mighty missionary program reaching first the Jews, but later on also the nations in general. End quote. That's exactly what the Bible says in Colossians 2:15, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them." That's what He did. That's what Jesus did. Of course, we read about this in the book of Revelation, don't we? Turn with me to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12 speaks about this great dragon, Satan, being defeated. It says there was war in heaven, verse 7. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. The dragon and his angels fought back. He was defeated and there was no longer a place for them in heaven. The great dragon was thrown down. The ancient serpent who is called the devil, Satan, the deceiver of the world, he was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. Thrown down with him. And in Revelation chapter 20, we read about the binding of Satan, the binding of Satan. So many people like to talk about that binding as being future. I don't think so. I don't think so. Because Jesus says in John 12, 31, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. I am dethroning Satan now. 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 Jesus says. And that is why when Jesus sent the disciples out to preach the gospel, they returned to Him. The 72, Luke 10, verse 17, they returned with joy. Why were they so happy? Well, because they said, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in Your name. And He said to them, I know, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. The fall of Satan was like the fall of Hitler during World War II. He could hide in his bunker all he wanted. The allies were coming. He was done. He was done. He would be defeated. Jesus is saying, look, how can Satan cast out Satan? What you're saying is ridiculous. I came to destroy Satan. I came to destroy him. Hebrews tells us, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. That's you and I. Jesus is the strong man. He goes into the royal house of Satan, binds him, takes back what rightfully belongs to him. All of those exorcisms were simply illustrations of what God was doing through Christ on a grand scale with you and I, delivering us. But this outward pressure of confronting insults not only involves an examination and refutation and illustration, but now the knockout punch. Jesus gives an exhortation. Notice verses 28 through 30. This gives to us one of the most solemn warnings ever recorded in Scripture. And I will tell you that from time to time in the ministry, for several hours on end, I have counseled professing Christians who were fearful they were guilty of committing the unpardonable sin of which this passage addresses. In those moments, and maybe you're here today and you're one of those people, I want to tell you, on the one hand, I I never want to downplay a concern like that because this is a serious sin. It's called an eternal sin. On the other hand, I also want to convey that if you are concerned that you've committed it, that is a good sign that you've not committed it, at least not yet. And that's where the warning comes. Jesus warns the religious leaders. We do well to heed this warning, it's a stern penalty. You blaspheme the Holy Spirit there's no forgiveness of sin for you. But it comes with a sweeping promise to begin with. Notice verse 28. I got to get back to Mark verse 28. Truly I say to you all sins will be forgiven the children of man. That's encouraging. Sweeping promise. Truly, amen it literally means amen. Usually said after a sermon or after a prayer or after a statement in a sermon to support what is being said. But what Jesus is getting ready to say is so important that Jesus says amen before he says it. What I'm saying is true and abiding and eternal. It's kind of like saying, listen up, amen, truth. All sins will be forgiven, the children of man Well, that's encouraging. That immediately rules out that the unpardonable sin is murder, as some people think, or adultery, or suicide. Those are not the unpardonable sins. Those are not the unpardonable sins. How do I know that? David committed murder and adultery. He's in heaven. All sins are forgiven when repentance takes place. That's why Jesus could hang on the cross and say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, right? That's why Peter, when he when he preached, he could tell people that they were acting in ignorance. You killed the author of life, Acts chapter three, that God raised from the dead. But I know you acted in ignorance, as did your rulers. Verse 19, repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. Always forgiveness. As far as the east is from the west, so far does God remove our transgressions from us. Though your sins are like scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they're red like crimson, they will become like wool. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's encouraging. That's encouraging. That's the gospel. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man. Not only that, but notice verse 28, Jesus goes on to say, and whatever blasphemies they utter. That's how God's grace is. The Greek word for blasphemies is blasphemia. If it was not taken lightly in the Old Testament, it could result in your stoning. In the New Testament, it's repeated. Don't slander Ephesians 4.31. Don't slander Colossians 3, eight. Put those things away from you. You're now a Christian. Don't defame the character of someone else created in the image of God. Don't defame God. Don't blaspheme the name of God. To speak a word against God is blasphemy. But amazingly, even that is forgivable. Notice verse 28. And all blasphemies that are uttered will be forgiven the children of men. How do I know that? Number one, Jesus said it. Number two, Peter would not be in heaven today. Peter denied our Lord three times. Those denials were accompanied with cursings and profanity and blasphemies. Peter wouldn't be forgiven. He is forgiven. He is in heaven. Paul would not be forgiven. You wouldn't even know the apostle Paul except as a persecutor of the church, because he was breathing murderous threats against the church and blasphemies against God. Acts chapter 9. So what is this? There is a sin and a particular kind of blasphemy that Jesus is clear is unforgivable. Verse 29. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Wow. No sin is eternal if it's forgiven, right? But all unforgiven sin is eternal. It doesn't get wiped away. It doesn't get washed clean. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. What is Jesus getting at? Well, you remember it was the Spirit, not Satan, that empowered Jesus from the very beginning Of his life, going all the way back to his birth. An angel answered, Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. The Holy Spirit will come upon you which means the Holy Spirit will come upon him. It's exactly what happened at his baptism. The Spirit of God lighted upon him like a dove. Mark chapter 1 verse 10. And then the Spirit of God led Jesus Mark 1 verse 12 into the wilderness to be tempted. And then it says in Luke 4:14 4, that he retreated in the power of the Spirit to Galilee and by the Spirit of God he cast out demons. Matthew 12:28. Acts 10.38, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. And even the author of Hebrews tells us that the blood of Christ offered came through the power of the eternal Spirit. Hebrews 9.14. Everything about Jesus' ministry was empowered by the Holy Spirit. He was fully submissive to His Father. I came not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me, and in full submission to the Spirit. So what is this sin of blaspheming the Holy Spirit? Well, Mark provides a clue in Mark 3 and verse 30. Mark tells us the reason Jesus says there's a sin that can't be forgiven, which is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, is because, Mark says, verse 30, they were saying, He has an unclean spirit. Not the Holy Spirit. We do a disservice to the Spirit when we honor the Father and we honor the Son and we don't honor the Spirit. Jesus is saying, you can talk about me all you want bad, don't talk about the Spirit. Because the Spirit and the Father in Christ are one. Everything Jesus did was in the power of the Spirit. Overwhelming evidence. Not in the power of Satan as they said, so the unpardonable sin is blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Jesus would even say this, this is... This is really interesting in Matthew chapter 12, verse 32. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. One less aware of Christ's divine power can be forgiven even when they blaspheme so long as they repent. But that wasn't the religious leader's. Theirs is a progressive, continual hardening of their hearts in spite of the evidence, right? I mean, it was progressive. Back in chapter 2, verse 7, they said, This man is blaspheming. Who can forgive sin? They were saying that behind his back. Then chapter three, verse six, the Pharisees went out immediately, held counsel with their rodents against him as to how to destroy him. What began with an accusation behind his back led to a council meeting on how they could kill him. and now, in chapter three and verses 22 and following, they're telling him, "You have a demon. you're satanic. They aren't repenting, they're accusing. they're not softening their hearts, they're hardening them. They are on the brink of no return. They have just about crossed the line. They are staring hell straight in the eyes and effectively getting ready to cut themselves off to the road of God's grace because they wouldn't tread the penitent path. For the religious leaders to attribute the work of Christ to Satan was to call good evil, right? Isaiah chapter 5. Woe to those who call good evil and evil good. Woe to those. What does this look like today? certain sign that you are in danger of committing the unpardonable sin involves this. A persistent pattern of resisting Christ gone on long enough that you then begin to treat Him, view Him, and speak of Him as if He is evil and not good. It's the great sin of this generation. Victimology, It's not my problem, it's God's problem. Jesus is not your problem, He's your solution. Victimology of our day will send many to hell. Many are guilty today of the unpardonable sin. They're leaving the church in groves. Judas the apostate, defected, the light of truth being revealed to him, many are defecting today. See, beloved, it's not those outside the sanctuary who are in jeopardy of committing the unpardonable sin, it's those within the sanctuary. And praise God, no Christian has ever and ever will commit the unpardonable sin, but that doesn't mean you're not capable of it. It's just God's preserving grace that keeps you from committing it. Many within the visible church now look back on their conversion to Christ and they say, Oh, that was foolish. They've walked away. They've defected. Like the son of perdition, Judas. They're on the road to perdition. This is the sin leading to death. 1 John 5, 16 speaks about it. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death. But there is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that, obviously. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is a sin that does not lead to death. But there is a sin that leads to death. What sin is this? This is the sin of rejecting the light of truth revealed to you as it was revealed to the religious leaders. They were in denial, spiritually blind. Hebrews chapter 10, how much worse punishment, verse 29, do you think, will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, has profaned the blood of the covenant by which He was sanctified, and has outraged the Spirit of grace. Don't insult Spirit of grace. Children, don't insult the Spirit of grace. Your parents preach to you the gospel. God commands you to repent and believe parents preach you the gospel because they love you. Don't insult the spirit of grace, profane the blood of the covenant by which you've been sanctified because you're part of a godly home. You've been set apart from the world and privileged. How many people walk away from their home, from their church, and how many parents brush it off like it's not a big deal? That's the unpardonable sin. It's an eternal sin Hebrews 6, verse 4, For it is impossible in the case of those who have been once enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit. They tasted the goodness of the Word of God, the powers of the age to come, and have then fallen away. It is impossible to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to content. Oh yeah, I used to believe that, not anymore. Such a warning is real. Repentance is the only thing that solves that, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. But those who actually commit blasphemy of the Holy Spirit will never repent. They've reached the point of no return. It's mocking what the Spirit has revealed through Christ and in Christ. I would just tell you to make sure you stay in the Word of God. Make sure you stay under the Word of God because that produces conviction. Conviction produces repentance, repentance protection from this sort of blasphemy. Keeping short records of sin, being insensitive to the consequences of sin and the shame that you can bring upon the church and upon the Son of God, for what? To walk away from the blessings of God's grace in your life? It's the most tragic thing Ever. This outward pressure of confronting insults is something that is still facing the church today. The church faces pressure to be politically correct, pressure for theological tolerance, but the church must stand strong. True Christians won't compromise. They will unashamedly stand against these pressures of the world no matter how unpopular it is to be a follower of Christ and no matter how much it may cost you. To flirt with compromise is to flirt with apostasy. To flirt with apostasy could lead you to committing the unpardonable sin. No, the church is not perfect. But you're going to walk away from the church because of bad experiences or bad feelings. Turn your back on Christ. Because of the pressures of the world, we'll accept you as you are. The church won't, but we will. Jesus said this in Matthew 10.25, It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher, the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of the household? We're talking about the family of God, right? The children of God, the household of God. If they said Jesus was possessed by Beelzebul, how much more will they malign the household of God? Don't turn your back on God. Don't give in to the pressure. Don't play with the fire of the unpardonable sin. Find a church, commit yourself to it, sit under the Word of God and pray that God's preserving grace will keep you from blaspheming the light of truth revealed to you. But now we come to the end of all of this. We're considering, because I believe Mark wants us to understand the various hostile pressures that the family of Christ faces from a world. First is inward. We called it an inward pressure of competing interests. The second was outward, an outward pressure of confronting insults. The third is a downward pressure, a downward pressure of confirming indication. Verses 31 through35, "There is a downward pressure, downward pressure from Christ the King from heaven that you need to feel. You need to face it head on. What is it? Well, hearkening back to verses 20 and 21, Jesus' family now arrives from Nazareth, they enter Capernaum, and notice verse 31, and his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside they sent to him and called to him. Jesus' sermon's always being interrupted. Interrupted by the paralytic, interrupted by the man with the unclean spirit. Now it's interruption by his own family who have come, to seize him, to take custody of him, verses 20 and 21. And the crowd was so large that uh, they couldn't get to him, and word had to pass to him, as verse 32 says, that Jesus was there. A crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And Jesus answered the congregation at that house with another question, the power of questions. Jesus answered them, Verse 33, Uh, Let me ask you a question. Who are my mother and my brothers? He asked the religious leaders, how can Satan cast out Satan? Now he's putting the pressure on. How or who are my mother and my brothers? This wasn't meant as a personal insult because I don't even think his family heard Jesus said that. He's simply making the point that his true spiritual family will be committed to him. They'll be committed to him. The reason they're outside and can't get in is because they're not committed to Him. They weren't even in Capernaum. So Jesus says, verse 34, looking about at those who sat around Him, He said, let me answer the question. Here are my mother and my brothers. This is the family of Christ. Verse 35, For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Christ's true family has nothing to do with physical connections, does it? spiritual connections. The only way you'll be part of the family of God is if you are united to Christ by faith. It's not the faith of your parents. It's not your baptism. It's not your confirmation. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become what? Children of God. To as many as believed in his name. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. Romans chapter 8. 1 John chapter 3. Jesus' true family was unlike the scribes and Pharisees related to Abraham. And even Jesus' own family at this point, some of which were unbelieving. Christ's true clan, His true family is defined there in verse 35, whoever does the will of God, that's my family. What is the will of God? Well, the will of God is believing first, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him shall have life eternal, and I'll raise him up on the last day. You want to be part of the family of God? Believe. You want to be part of the family of God? Doing God's will not only involves believing, it involves repenting. Acts 17.30, the times of ignorance have been overlooked now by God, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent. You want to be part of the family of God? You want to do the will of God? Believe in Christ? Repent of your sins? Watch the Spirit work? Because Jesus says in John 14, 15, He who loves me is he who keeps my commandments. You need to feel that pressure, right? I need to feel that pressure. Because our tendency is to be antinomian. Our tendency is to say, I don't want a law over me. Don't tell me what to do. You need to be told what to do. If you are not told what to do and warned about what not to do, you may do what you're not supposed to do. What kind of parent says, Ah, no laws, no rules for our house, do whatever you want. That's insanity. How much more in the spiritual house of God? It's impossible to be part of the clan of Christ, apart from complete allegiance. That's the point. You need to learn to deal with the inward pressure of competing interests. We all do. You need to learn to deal with the outward pressure of confronting insults. The world's going to hate you. But make sure you deal with this downward pressure of confirming indication that you're part of the family of God manifesting itself in your desire to do the will of God. Maybe you wonder, have I committed the sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Let me ask you a question. Do you desire to do the will of God? Do you love the Lord? Do you honor the Lord? Do you desire to obey Him? You're here today. It must mean something. But here's the point Jesus' kingdom has no rivals. Entrance into His house requires responding to the gifts of the Spirit, which are faith and repentance, being united to Him. Jesus put it another way in another place. Whoever is not with me is what? Against me. Whoever does not gather with me, what? Scatters. Don't scatter. Don't scatter. Where are you in relation to Christ? Are you on the road to perdition or the road to heaven? As I said, church membership doesn't save. Baptism doesn't save. Confirmation doesn't save. Those may be evidences that you're part of the outward family of the church. But unless your sins are forgiven and washed away, you can't be part of Christ's eternal family. In all of our discussion about joining this church and taking people through the membership class, what a tragedy it would be for an unbeliever to go through that class and join this church. They do it all the time. There are those you think are believers, they walk away from everything, walk away from every relationship that was ever important to them, walk away from all the ministry of the Word of God in their lives walk away from the people who love them when no one else would love them, and they walk away from some, for some sin, some woman, money, some thing that only gives passing and fleeting pleasure and results in eternal condemnation. Jesus said, I want my true family to be part of my family. Those are the ones that do the will of God. May God help us to do His will. May God join us together to His family through the blood of Christ. Let us pray. Father, Your Word is so convicting. We know all of Your Word is powerful. All of Your Word is authoritative but there is something about the words of Christ that cut to the quick of our hearts. There is just something about the preaching of Christ, the teaching of Christ that compels us. The way He asked questions, the way that He confronted sin, it leaves the true people of God fearful of Him in one sense, but Unable to resist Him in another sense because we don't want to shame Christ. Lord, we pray that You would protect our church. Protect our church from the sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Walking away, finally rejecting You. Preserve us by Your grace. Keep us near to You. Bless us as we walk through church membership. May the commitment be strong. May the commitment be real. And may people count the cost. May they understand their commitment to you involves a commitment to your church. Lord, we pray now as we sing this hymn of response that we would understand what it means in the sweetness of trusting in Jesus. We pray these things in His blessed and holy name. Amen.